0: And welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I'll give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Barbie Ingle. She, when she was growing up, you know, she was big into cheerleading, dance, gymnastic, the whole nine yards of being very athletic and enthusiastic. Um, but then, you know, chronic pain kind of changed that and her, her life has taken a little bit of a different path and she's a bit of her own advocate doing a lot of good things in the world. So she's got lots she can talk about. So I'm happy to have her here. Barbie, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself?
1: Thank you, Sarah. I'm excited to be here. And like you said, I was growing up, I was an athlete full of life, energy, energy, love to get out and perform and be in front of people. And uh, I like to say an eight second car accident changed my life. And um, that happened back in 2002. And I actually had chronic pain prior to that. In uh, 1996, I developed endometriosis and um, went through a whole treatment series with that. And I was like, yes, I conquered it. I beat it. And although that left me not able to have children of my own, I was moving on with life and got my life back on track. I was living all of my dreams. I was the head coach at Washington State University for cheerleading and dance, and I was helping set up the Seattle Seahawks mascot program with their mascot blitz, and I literally was living my dreams, and uh, that eight-second car accident stopped my world. And um, I had been married for about 10 years. I had my own cheer and dance training company. I was the head coach of Washington state. I was riding around in limousines and private jets. And I went from that to losing everything, my marriage, my house, my health, my finances. Um, I went down to food stamps, didn't know where I was going to live, what I was going to do. I asked uh, the team doctors at Washington State if they could go anywhere to get the best treatment for something they didn't know what it was, because they didn't know what it was and neither did I, Um, where would they go? And they said Arizona. So I moved to Arizona. And um, since then, I've also received treatment in in multiple other states, but I decided to stick my roots here in Arizona and actually found someone that was better for me and um, was more on the same level, uh, with me in life, um, than my first husband and, um, started rebuilding a whole new life with new rare disease diagnosis that that car accident triggered a rare disease. It didn't cause the rare disease. I had it. I just didn't know I had it until my body started attacking itself. So, That's a lot right there.
0: Uh, Yeah, yeah, definitely a a bit of a whirlwind to have been, you know, like, young, living the dream, all these great things. Um, And then to have one thing trigger something that was brewing inside. Um, Yeah. So do you want to, before we get into the nitty gritty of of the car accident, the disease and all of that, do you want to talk a little bit about what life was like um, when you were doing all of the cheer, enthusiastic um, and, and helping with the Seattle Seahawks even?
1: Uh, life was amazing. I actually was taking life for granted and uh, was living all of my dreams. Like you said, I started cheer and dance and gymnastics at the age of four. And went all the way through college and I graduated from college and I moved to George Mason University in Virginia. And I moved to Seattle to get married. And before I even got married, I was um, there was about a month time frame. And um, I was walking in, like a nightly walk, and I walked by some cheerleaders practicing and they were the worst cheerleaders I saw in my life. and I was like, I gotta help these people. So the next week before I even got married, I started my own business and started doing cheerleading and dance training. And um, literally, that's what I knew. The only thing I knew from, from since I can remember was I was going to be a cheerleader. And I would tell my parents, I'm going to be a cheerleader the rest of my life. And my dad would say, no, you can't do that the rest of your life. You have to have something to fall back on. You have to get a real college degree you have to, you know, do other things in life. So I, besides being a, a performer in cheerleading and dance and gymnastics, I also did, um, track team and soccer. And, uh, I was in the choir at the church and I went through Girl Scouts from Brownies all the way to cadets. So when I do something, I like fully do it and, and do every single stage, um, which I think is a, a very unusual, um, like seeing my friends growing up, a lot of them would try something for a few months or a year or two and then they quit and I would just be so loyal. I'm like loyal to a fault. So growing up, I I was loyal to any team I joined and any activity I participated in and wanted to be the best that I could be. And I wouldn't really compare myself to other people in the process i myself was my competition (laughs) and what's the best i can do at this and and push myself to to win awards like best all-around cheerleader and and that type of thing and and um and you know really push myself to be the best i could i also grew up with a learning disability and i had my elementary school principal tell me that i would never graduate high school let alone College, go to college. Like, don't even think about college because you're not even going to graduate high school. And that was elementary school. Like, how did he know what I was going to do? And so I ended up graduating college in four years. I was um, out of four siblings or three siblings. I was the only one to graduate on time in that four year process. So I really would push myself to be the best that I could be in any situation, no matter what adversity I was facing. And I think that prepared me when I, ended up developing chronic illnesses.
0: And because, you know, your, your dad said you have to get that college degree, what did you get your degree in?
1: Uh, I got my degree in social psychology, which is the study of why and how individuals act in a group. So it's looking at individuals, but how you get a whole group to do something, which really comes into play with cheerleading, because <laughs> you want the whole crowd to be yelling defense or offense or whatever you're trying to get them to cheer with you. And um, so I learned the psychology about that and how to work in groups. So it helped me be a better coach. And, um, you know, I didn't know that that's what I was going to do when I graduated college. It just happened to to continue on, and I wanted to continue cheerleading cheerleading and dance in my life and literally found a way to make it happen by starting my own company and then getting that head coaching job.
0: Yeah. So, what was it like then when things started to change and you and you had that car accident?
1: Oh. Well, overnight I I went to the hospital the day of the accident and um they said that I had whiplash and I'd be better in 3 or 4 days. And three or four days later, I still was not better. I was actually getting worse. And I started going from doctor to doctor, chiropractor, physical therapy, trying to get better. But I had, and I've had pains. I'm an athlete. I've sprained my ankle and broken bone. And, and I knew what that type of pain was. And I've always bounced back from it throughout my life. This time, it was a different kind of pain. And at the time, I didn't have the words to describe what I was feeling. But it was a burning fire pain and that burning fire pain had i been able to express those words that simple phrase burning fire pain uh i think i would have gotten treatment faster but it took 43 doctors in three years to get a proper diagnosis because i have a rare disease and the doctors all i would would do is go in and cry and say help me fix me stop this burning or stop this pain i wouldn't call it burning And it took about three years to speak up for myself and become my own best advocate so that I could then go and help other people. I literally went from top of the world to suffering daily with burning fire pain that was unimaginable, undescribable at the time. And no one seemed to know all these professionals didn't understand or know what I was going through. And that was just one of the symptoms. I had a whole bunch of symptoms, vertigo and I would go to practice because i tried to keep coaching and i tried to keep cheering my way to it and through it what i was facing even though i didn't know what i was facing and um, i would literally go to practice i'd get up in the morning go to practice at the end of practice i would go to my office and i would shut and lock the door and i would go to sleep in my office and if somebody knocked on my door I would wake up and pretend like I was awake, that I was choreographing, that I was doing my job and doing all the things I was supposed to be doing when literally I wasn't, I was in my office sleeping because I would only be able to sleep for 30 to 45 minutes at a time. So I was constantly sleep deprived, but then these, these pains would wake me up and I didn't know how to get through it besides just trying to catch up on my sleep. And so I was becoming a very poor coach the the last few months of of coaching um i i was trying my hardest but it i wasn't succeeding
0: yeah and i can only imagine how that would have been so what was it like then making the decision like i have to walk away so that i can better myself
1: i walked away first from coaching at washington state university and it was after realizing um we we had um Midnight Madness and uh, which is a basketball, um, the first day that um, the basketball players can practice. They like make this whole big celebration about it in college basketball and it's called Midnight Madness and the, the cheerleaders and dance team really run the whole Midnight Madness and the, the day before um, was when I realized that I didn't choreograph anything. My team, my team members, I was in charge of 56 student athletes. They were like, coach, what, what, what do we do tomorrow? What are we supposed to do? Like, we don't have any routines. We don't have any music chosen. We, we don't even know what uniform to wear. And I was like, no, I I choreographed it for you. I remember teaching it to you. And, and literally I dreamed if I did, I dreamed it. Um. But I didn't prepare them at all. And I still tried to hold on and grasp and be like, I can do this. I can do this. And and I found more and more. I, I'm very good at keeping a schedule and keeping notes and putting everything into a calendar and thinking ahead of, I would be three to four months ahead with my schedules, with when our practices, when our games, when when everything was. And I couldn't even put a calendar together for my student-athletes. And it kept getting worse and worse. And the more I tried to fight it and fight or push past the pain, like I did with other injuries throughout my life, the worse I got. And I just, I had to give that up first. And I still held on to my cheer and dance training company. Um, But I gave that up. We had a competition and um, I knew that I couldn't focus enough to judge. So I thought I could focus enough to add and tally the scores. And it took me hours like normally it takes half an hour to 45 minutes to tally the scores, have them get run through an audit and and start giving out awards. And about two and a half hours into that process, the crowd was restless. Everybody was starting to get like upset and angry and like, why is this taking so long? And I realized I couldn't concentrate. I, I couldn't get through that process and um, and do the scoring correctly. And I knew at that point, I wasn't able to I was trying and calling to hold on to everything I just couldn't.
0: Yeah, so then when you were able to find Arizona and yes. finally get start to get some answers, can you take us through that journey?
1: Sure. so I by the time I moved to Arizona, I had seen probably fifteen to 20 doctors. By the time I got diagnosed properly, it had been just under three years, and it took 43 providers. And most of that was because I did not have the proper vocabulary to explain what I was going through. I just knew all the things I had lost and that I was fighting to keep in my life and was having to let go of them. And the doctors would say, I don't know what's wrong with you, but you're never going to cheer again. So stop thinking about that. You need to move on. And so then I was fighting that stigma and um, and going to counseling and and you know c- questioning myself is this all in my head is there really something wrong physically with me or is there like some kind of mental block that I couldn't handle in life and I threw this big wall up like what is happening and it's like no legit this is actually a rare disease It's just most doctors that I learned through this process most doctors don't know about rare diseases most of them don't even know about all of the the well-known diseases or more known diseases and there's 7000 rare diseases and at that time i got diagnosed with reflex sympathetic dystrophy rsd for short and um when i finally got diagnosed by that 43rd doctor he was like i want to try to do this test and that test he was the first doctor to look at all of my records and say, I think I know what's going on, but I need to run these tests. And I said, stop, I'm going to advocate for myself, because the last 42 got it wrong. And I'm just, I can't be a guinea pig anymore. And he said, okay, and he, and he um, said, just call me when you're ready. And I went home and studied and and looked up all the information he gave me and studied the tests and what I was going to be going through. And a week later, I went through the testing, and I um, ended up having RSD. and. Uh, had to learn this whole new disease and what i was going through and um, that took about another year and then i was ready to talk about it and share and um, share my journey that i had gone through in that three-year process four-year process at that time but it still took after getting diagnosed it still took another four years before i was out of a wheelchair and up and walking again and um, now i go through infusion therapy i'm in and out of imp- infusions i just had one last week so i'm doing pretty good um but without the infusions my body gets locked up it's called dystonia um so my body will start curling up my fingers and legs and arms my extremities they just don't work well my skin color gets blotchy kind of like i have spider webs under my skin um, that you can see but they're red instead of like a see-through spider web it's it's like red splotchy spider webs um, all over my body. And um, it, it really t- was a tough process to get through the diagnosis and learning the medical system and navigating the minefield that that comes with that. And learning that not everybody that wears a, a white coat and has a credentials behind their name actually knows about every disease. Like even a neurologist that knows about MS might not know about um, diabetic neuropathy. So you have to find specialists that study and learn and know about the disease that you have. And I learned that the hard way.
0: Yeah. Well, when you hear about how many rare diseases there are, uh, that that would be a lot to learn.
1: <laughs> it, it is. And nobody, I don't think that there's, I mean, a computer could learn all of that. And they're working on AI to help with diagnosing rare diseases and get better treatments. And and uh, even Right to Try passed a few years ago, where we can try options that wouldn't normally be open to us for treatments, um, but we now have that ability to look and see. And AI can be programmed to look at the, all of the different rare diseases and the ones that are genetic, the ones that are environmental, and, and um, try to figure that information out. And we're getting so much improvement in care with genetic information as it is being discovered and new tests are coming out and new treatments are coming out
0: so what exactly is rsd and is like is it something that is genetic and like they could have found in you if they had been like looking prior to the car accident
1: oh my gosh that's a great question so the first one rsd reflex is anything in your body that's automatic Goes haywire. Sympathetic is your nervous system, so it's your sympathetic nervous system. That's where the burning fire pain comes in. It's like someone put lighter fluid in your veins and caught you on fire, and it's that's the hardest part to to um, work on as a symptom. And dystrophy is loss of muscle and bone. So um, at the at the time that this all happened, I weighed between ninety and hundred pounds, and um, uh, now I'm about 115, but I'm still considered obese because my muscle to, to fat ratio, although I'm small and I have small bones and they, they're very thin because of the dystrophy, the loss of muscle and bone, um, I'm considered uh, skinny fat or or obese because of the amount of fat that is on my body versus muscle. So it's an interesting position to be in.
0: Yeah. And and so to the other question about heredity and and having found it.
1: So that's a great question. And there is auto antigens that they found that um, there's some of us have one, some of us have both. Um, They should have been able to find it in a blood test, but that test is not available in the United States yet. So um, you can ship your blood overseas if you have the right doctors and know the right doctors. but. one of my blood relatives also has this condition and he actually had it prior to me having it. Um, but he's not public with his diagnosis. Um, and he didn't know what he had until I got diagnosed and my stepsister, who's not blood related. She passed away from complications of it, um, back in 2006. So right after the year after I got diagnosed, um, But she had it um, since 1994, and they actually put her into a mental institution for a while because you just question your being when you have this disease and they have no answers for you. um, Her started after a gallbladder surgery. Um, My other family member that's blood related, his started after um, he fell and broke his wrist. So it's something that's in our blood, and it's triggered by a trauma. Mine was a car accident. And it attacks after that trauma. And if you don't have the right words and vocabulary to explain it, it's difficult to explain. And then you can't get a diagnosis. So you can't work towards treatments. So it, it, it can be a, a severe learning process um, while you're not feeling good. And I don't just mean like, oh, I feel like I have the flu or I'm sick. I'm talking your your bones, your muscles, your GI system concentration, um, sometimes my hearing and vision are affected. i definitely affected by sharp, sudden noises, things that didn't bother me before, like a loud yelling of a cheerleader, uh, bother me now. Loud music, um, pots and pans clanging, the wind from a ceiling fan can be excruciating. So you go from being normal to some little trauma. One of my best friends stepped on a rock, and, and uh, it triggered hers. Um, so they say there's not a genetic component. One of the things that I found in, in common with a lot of us patients is exposure to pesticides. Uh, when I was a child, um, my my stepsister and my other family member and I, we would chase behind the mosquito man. I grew up in Virginia and we had the mosquito man. I, I don't know if if all your listeners know what that means, but it's a a guy who drives through your neighborhood spraying pesticide off the back of his truck. And we would, all the other kids would go inside. We would get on our bikes and we would ride behind the mosquito man. Why didn't we ride in front of him? I don't know. Um, Yelling mosquito man, mosquito man, warning the rest of the neighborhood that the mosquito man was out spraying. And we're just getting sprayed with this chemical whatever chemical they're using in these trucks and um it probably well i know it's not a good idea please don't chase the mosquito man uh if you do live in a city that has that spray um please go inside and um (laughs) and wash off but that's something that um many of us have been exposed to not just that kind of pesticide but if you get your house, if you get the interior of your house sprayed off in for um, any kind of bugs or or that type of thing, please be careful with any of those pesticides because um, it could be something from that. It could be something from a tick. They don't know exactly what it is, but they do know the autoantigens that are in the blood. So they technically can look for it if they want to.
0: And, and how rare is this rare disease? So
1: there's a, um about 50,000 cases new cases a year um with this this rare disease and um they they say that there's about 1 to 2 million people that have it but it's in the same family as fibromyalgia which there is a blood test for and insurance covers it now yay um and um also Lyme disease is also similar so um they just haven't progressed. So there could be as up to um, maybe 10 million people worldwide living with it. But um, here in the United States, um, there's one to 2 million with about 50,000 new cases a year, which is what makes it rare.
0: Yeah. Now, what is, you know, you've talked a little bit about like the infusions and, and different like side effects and stuff. So what is your day to day, long term How are you dealing with all of this?
1: So um, when I'm out of remission, I have a scooter. And um, when I'm not able to um, use my scooter and propel myself, I have a wheelchair. So my husband pushes me, but he goes where he wants to go. So like getting a a scooter is liberating (laughs) Um, to be able to go where I want to go and see what I want to see. Um. But um, that did give me mobility and the ability to to get around, um, especially when I'm out of remission. When I'm in remission, I still have physical limitations, but I have that burning fire pain under control and the dystonia under control. And um, so life is a little bit easier. But when I'm not in remission, I need help with cooking, cleaning, bathing, dressing, um, all, all the different aspects of life that we go through uh so it, it definitely sometimes you can feel like a burden on the people around you especially my husband um although we discovered what this is together and he met me he never knew me prior to um having limitations in life and he fell in love with me anyways which is amazing and um and so we kind of discovered that i have a rare disease and i actually have multiple rare diseases but that's the one that's the, the worst impact on my life. And, um, and we kind of discovered it together and found ways to better my life. For instance, I use paper plates and plastic cups, and I don't like shoes at all. Um, but if I have to wear shoes, I wear flip-flops. <laughs> and um, so I have like 26 pairs of flip-flops. So I have every color and it matches every outfit I have. and um, that that kind of helps me like get dressed up or feel like I'm getting dressed up, even when I'm not, because I can just put on a different pair of shoes and they'll match whatever outfit I have on.
0: <laughs> and and how often are you in remission?
1: Um, since December two thousand nine, I've been in and out of remission, um, all these years, so about eleven years, and um, and it can last the longest it's lasted is about six months. And the shortest was about two weeks. Um, Any new trauma that, see, when you're in remission, you still have this disease in your body, but it's behaving and you can um, relate it to a computer. So a computer gets a virus and you can reboot your computer and it might start acting well for a little while, but it still has a virus in it until you get the virus cleaned out. You um, still have troubles with your computer. So it's like going in and out of remission as you reboot it. Um, that's kind of how my body is. So anytime I have new trauma or insult, it can take me out of remission instantly. So I could be fine one second and not fine the next second. And, um, you know, that, that two week period was, I, I burnt my hand on a coffee pot. Um, one time I, I stepped on, um, my husband was working on our bed frame and, um, I stepped on a piece of the bed frame and it punctured the bottom of my foot, like a hole punch And it's excruciating and you're, you're totally fine. One minute you're standing there thinking that you're part of a situation. And the next minute, the environment jumps out at you and, and gets you and you're not okay. And, um, you all of a sudden you're bed bound again. And so, um, every time it happens, I, I struggle because You never know if the treatment I do infusion therapy, as I said, and you never know if it's going to work. Like you pray every time it's going to work and that you'll be okay again, but there's no guarantee that it will. And, um, and so every every time I come out of remission, it's, it's a shock. And I also avoid doing some, some activities because it might, my body might perceive it as a trauma. So, uh, Sometimes, um, I, I, I just hold back or know my boundaries and I'll test them every few months. And that's usually when I get hurt or something happens where I come out of remission and and I'm like, Oh, there's where my boundary is. It's still there. And, um, so it's, it's living and one of the things that changed for me most in this whole 20 year odyssey that I've gone through is time has changed. Like most people don't think about time or energy that they're putting out. For me, you know, it's not 24 hours in a day anymore. For me now, it's moments. I live my life in moments. And I think about it like every person gets, um, if you're healthy, you get unlimited energy pennies. For if you have a rare disease or a chronic illness, you get 12. You get 12 pennies of energy a day. And you have to decide how you're going to spend your energy pennies. And this was something my cheer coaches taught me back when I was co- when I was cheering growing up, um, and they would say no no deposit no return. Life is what you you know you put in your bank metaphorically, and and you can draw on that and have those talents, resources, time, energy, money, whatever you put into the bank, you have to take out. Um, for me, that it doesn't work that way. I can save up for two weeks all the energy pennies. And try to spend them all in one day, but that could take me out of remission just trying to do that. So I have to plan and prepare and schedule things out and be very organized and um, make sure that I don't spend all of my energy pennies in the same place or get injured trying to spend my energy pennies.
0: Yeah. Now, how did you get to this point where you are willing to share your story?
1: Uh, I felt like it was a need. At one point in, before I was diagnosed um, in 2003, I had moved to Arizona, and a doctor here did a vascular study, and he said that, um, that uh, in my thoracic outlet area, which is in my right upper quadrant of my body, um, that there was a lack of blood flow to my brain. It was, something was cutting it off, and that I would die if I did not have emergency surgery, and I didn't question him. I just went in and had the surgery done. Well, the doctor made a mistake during surgery and he left two bones spurs. One was going into my lung and one was hooked around my brachial plexus nerve bundle. So it was causing even more damage and more pain. And at that point, the pain was only in my face, neck and shoulder. And um, after that botched surgery, it spread um, down my arm into my hand and then jumped to my foot and came up my leg. and um, and by 2006, it was full body organ involvement and everything. Um, but I didn't question him and I should have. And then when I went back and said, you know, I've, I've had five lung collapses now, something's wrong. He was like, that happens sometimes, spontaneous lung collapses. And I, I just knew something was wrong. And I spoke up for myself and was like, well, I need a second opinion and I left Arizona on a bus ride because my lung was collapsing. I couldn't get on a plane. And so I took a bus to Colorado and um, did, I, I met a new doctor and he did a 3D body scan. I got to see my insides in 3D. It was amazing. Um, but he said, I know exactly what's wrong with you. Um, in one of those five lung collapses, he said, or it, I had a full lung collapse. My, um, My lung on the right side collapsed and it was putting pressure laying onto my heart. And um, I don't remember the whole situation. Uh, I just remember I couldn't breathe all of a sudden. And then my life flashed before me. And um, then I woke up after emergency surgery. (laughs) But when my life flashed before me, it was like a thousand images. It was like my brain just fired all the things I'd seen in my life with a thousand words per picture at the same time. And I understood everything at the same time. And it was don't sweat the small stuff. What matters most in life is human connection. And that kind of um, experience got me to say, wait, something's wrong. I got to to see actually what was wrong and something was wrong. And it helped me see that questioning myself, I shouldn't be doing, I should be questioning the, the provider in front of me as to how they know What's going on inside me without doing any tests, um, <laughs> and um, and I went in and had a second surgery to fix what the first doctor messed up in Colorado. So I had to return to Colorado. I went once to get diagnosed and find out what was wrong, and then a second time um, to go back and get it fixed. And um, and and uh, you know, it it really was. Uh, a life experience to have your life flash before you. So,
0: yeah. So now what is it that you're doing uh, with your life nowadays that you are not a cheer coach?
1: Yes. So I still am a cheerleader. I'm a cheerleader of hope and possibilities. And I offer help to patients around the world that live with chronic illnesses. At first, I um, offered help for people who live with the same disease as me. And then quickly realized as my network expanded that this is something that happens to people that have chronic illnesses and especially rare diseases, and um, that I needed to expand who I was helping. And I've published nine books. Um, Most of them are on chronic pain and health, uh, one motivational book and a children's book. And I'm actually working on three more books. (laughs) Um, I'm in the process of, of three more. And, um, I wrote a relationship book with my husband about how to keep your marriage strong when one of you lives with a chronic illness. And, um, so I'm, I'm doing that. And then I also do education awareness, social events, and some access to care before the pandemic, uh, struck, I was actually going with other patients to their medical appointments to be a voice in the room and speak up for them as my husband does for me. And, um, hopefully that, you know, once the the coronavirus and other conditions get um, better controlled throughout the world, we can start attending doctor visits with patients again. And I really enjoyed being able to, to do that and be that voice in the room um, for patients. But in the meantime, I do educational events online mostly, but actually coming up this year, we have six in-person events that we're participating in. And um, And then I mentor patients one on one with phone calls and emails, and um, is, you know, different ways that I can connect with them and and help them in a variety of of ways. Uh, Whatever, really, whatever they need help with, it's probably something I've been through. And if not, I have the connections and resources to find them somebody that is able to help them.
0: And now, the people that you're helping, are they mostly people who have been diagnosed or are they like working through diagnoses or where are they in the process?
1: Oh my goodness. Every person is in a different place. So um, if you give me a collection of symptoms, I'm really good at saying maybe this is the type of doctor to go see for those types of symptoms to get a diagnosis. But um, once you have a diagnosis, I'm very good resource and outlet for things that you can do and change in your everyday life to live a better life on a daily basis Um, and for those people who uh, a lot of like about 30 percent of diagnoses are idiopathic they'll say oh that's idiopathic neuropathy or that's idiopathic you know um, sarcoidosis or whatever condition that they throw at you um which really if idiopathic means that the doctors haven't figured it out yet (laughs) I used to say it may, It means that the doctor's an idiot, but really they just don't know and they don't have the time to go and investigate or they don't take the time to go and investigate based on their uh, patient load or um, what their areas of interest are. So uh, those 30% of patients, they they just get put in a, a idiopathic term and then other doctors get stuck on that and don't take the next step to see what is the underlying cause and that's what i try to help patients figure out whether it's helping them get the right genetic testing or pharmacogenomics testing or um even like one of the symptoms of rsd is is uh can be gastroparesis where your stomach is paralyzed and i have that myself and um just getting a a, a bio um a bio gut health check Um, that test, it's the company I use is Viome, but that they have multiple companies now back then I only had heard of one. Um, It gave me a whole new way to eat, which was helpful in processing foods when my stomach is paralyzed and not processing the foods correctly. Um, things, Things like that, that patients, doctors don't have time to tell the patients about, but as an advocate, I do. I have the time to share what I went through and what might be able to help other people. And, you know, the same things that help me aren't going to help every single person. So even if you have the exact same diseases, the same things that help me don't help my family member that has the same disease. So you really have to find what works for you. But I can give you lots of ideas. Take the ones that are helpful and let the rest go. Uh, Don't get stuck on that. But know that there is hope, there is help, and, and all you have to do is reach out and, and seek ideas and um, don't get stuck in one silo. If you've been living with a rare disease or a chronic disease for 5, 10 years and you're still doing exactly what you did 5 or 10 years ago when you first got diagnosed, you probably need to look at all the new options. There's constantly things coming down the pipeline, whether it be a medication, a surgical procedure. Uh, mindfulness, meditation, chiropractics, um, acupuncture versus acupressure. There's so many different things. There's hundreds of treatments. Keep your mind open to find what combination works best for you. And remember, it's not necessarily one thing. It could be a combination of multiple things to help you live your best life. And just because one thing helps you this much doesn't mean that you can't find another tool that can take you even further.
0: Right. Now, how do you keep on top of everything changing and and being a good resource for others?
1: I well, before the pandemic, it was a lot easier. Um, but I attend conferences and I talk to not only the providers that are treating patients, but I also talk to the researchers and scientists that are in the labs that are creating options and treatments. I've participated in clinical trials. I suggest that other people participate in clinical trials, if they're right for them, make sure that you um, know what you're getting into with a clinical trial. And um, I I used to just be open to any clinical trial, but now I know you can be injured in a clinical trial or even in something that's FDA approved, it could injure you. It might've been re- good for 75% of the people, but you're in the 25%. B, when you make a decision, know that You're okay with the decision that's made. Don't feel pressure or guilt from providers or family members that are trying to get you to do something that could harm you down the road. And you have to be okay with whatever choices you make with your treatment. And I had to come to that realization through trial and error. And hopefully now sharing my story helps other people see, wait a second, I need to stop and make sure I'm okay with whatever it is I'm trying, but be open to all the things that are coming down the pipeline.
0: Yeah. Now going back a little bit, um, on the personal side of things, your, your husband now, um, so, you know, you met while going through all of this stuff, um, and, and you mentioned he's been a, a good advocate for you. So can you talk a little bit about how, how he helps you and, and maybe just a little bit of your story?
1: Sure. So his name is Ken, we're Ken and Barbie. Um, at that point in my life, God was like, I had just gotten divorced and I was not looking for anybody. And he was my new neighbor when I moved to Arizona. And, um, and I said, Hey, you know, I'm having these medical issues. I don't know what's going on, but I need help to go to doctor appointments and I can't drive right now. So if I paid you, could you drive me to and from physical therapy and doctor appointments? And he owned his own company and he said, sure, I'll help you out so i was paying him and <laughs> and um he was driving me but in the drives we got to talk and learn about each other and um one day he asked me out on a date and i was like why would you want to date me i've lost everything i my worth my self worth was so low but he saw all the good in me you know through our conversations that he was like this is someone i've been looking for and although she has these health things that we'll get past that, not knowing it was long-term. Um, we was thinking we'll get past that. And, um, and this is, you know, who I see my future with. And we started dating and then we fell in love. And um, then we felt also through that whole process, learned about rare diseases and chronic diseases and what I was going to be facing. And by that time we were already both so in love that, Um, It didn't make sense to not be together. We found a way to tackle this and and get through it as a team. And um, he goes through everything that I do, except for the actual physical symptoms. But um, he's right there alongside me. Everything, you know, physically or spiritually, emotionally, financially, um, losing friends, losing family members on, on his side that didn't understand what I was going through or what he saw in me. Um, with us not being able to set the expectation, which is an important step when you live with a rare chronic disease, we didn't get to do that with some of the the family and friends. So we lost some of them and, um, he stuck by me and, um, we've gotten through this together. So, um, now we're Ken and Barbie, we're a dynamic duo, we're, <laughs> we're a strong team and, um, we work very, very well together. And I I think God put him in my life exactly when I needed him and he needed me for all different reasons. But um it it was a learning process together.
0: And uh because you know, Ken and Barbie, you know, great duo. Do do you ever get like weird comments about your names?
1: Um, yes, but we love it. It's an icebreaker, it helps people remember us. we um, talk to our representatives, our state representatives, and federal federal representatives, and work on legislation. It gets them to remember us. Oh, Ken and Barbie are coming into the office today, or we're going to Skype with Ken and Barbie. It's um, we we get people going. Oh, Ken and Barbie, but with the people who we need to remember us, remember us, and they remember our story and they remember our journey. And so for us, we let the negative go and focus on the positives of being Ken and Barbie and um, use that attention for the good of other patients and caregivers and helping the um, situation and helping hopefully society um, do better with people who are disabled due to rare and chronic illnesses.
0: That's great. I absolutely love that. And I, I love just... How are you too pet? And um, you know, you were paying him to take you places,
1: right? And then I was like, um, you know, do I we're dating? Do I still have to pay you? <laughs> and he's like, no, you can stop paying me. <laughs> so, um, but it, it's it's an interesting story.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, lots of fun. Um, so at this point, is there anything else like full? the 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 floor is yours that you would like to share with the listeners about you your disease your life anything
1: yeah well i th- I think that one of the things that people think if you live with a rare disease or chronic illness is that you'd always be depressed you always be sad or anxious or have all these negative emotions and just like any human we still go through the whole range of emotions we still want to have fun we still want to have meaningful moments and life experiences and um you know i when when i first got sick and i couldn't dance every day um my my dad would say to me you know you can dance in your heart so even if you physically can't dance you can find a way to dance and i think that a lot of times we say oh i can't do it the way i want to do it and knowing that there's a million ways to accomplish your goals keep going keep moving forward always forward and know that you can get past any obstacle that's in your way it might take more time it might take more effort it it might um, need to get broken down into even smaller steps you might have to have some other people uh in your team around you that can help you but know that you can't accomplish anything that you want to accomplish and if you need to use me as an example to show you that you can find a way through whatever you're facing, whatever challenge it is, you can find a way through.
0: That's some great advice. And I think, um, even just listening to you talk today, um, like, I feel like you still have that, that cheerleader vibe. And, and as you said, you know, you still are a cheerleader just, just for different things. And so your energy comes through. So you're, you're definitely example (laughs) of that, you know, a, a chronic illness does not directly correlate to depression all of the time
1: right absolutely and who wouldn't be sad when you lose everything Mm -hmm. but you need to pick yourself back up and start working towards your future every day you wake up is a day that you can do something and sometimes those days are going to be in bed sometimes they're going to need a utility a a cane or a scooter or wheelchair Um, sometimes you're going to be able to walk on your own do what you can do and live each moment to the fullest. And it's going to look different every single moment.
0: Yeah. Now at the end with all of my guests, I ask a random question, nothing to do with, with what we've talked about. So my question for you is what is something either a goal or just something in general you're looking forward to in your future?
1: Oh goodness. Well, like I said, I haven't really I didn't dance for years. And I'm I got to meet Paula Abdul about 10 years ago now. And she has the same rare disease I do, RSD. And we bonded over that and also cheer and dance, of course. And um and she's got me start I used to prior to getting sick. I dreamed and I danced in my dreams and I performed in my dreams, but I also did it in real life. Then I got sick and all of those dreams, like real life dreams stopped. And she got me dreaming about dancing again. And in 2016, well, 2015, I saw Billy Blanks Jr., Billy Blanks, you know, Tybo, his son was on Shark Tank and he went on to talk about a, a new program called Dance It Out. And he... um uh, I've become friends with him and um, and he actually physically got me dancing again. It looks different than the old dancing that, you know, professional dancing that I did, but I'm dancing physically again. And he has a show um, that's going season two is going to start taping soon called dance it out and on lifetime television. And um, he has invited me to be a part of season two. So I'm really looking forward to like actually being on TV and dancing and, um, sharing my journey and story. But, but for me, I I get to share my journey, but I get to dance again in a meaningful world and realm and, um, not professional, so to say, but in a entertaining kind of fashion that also is educational at the same time. So I'm really looking forward to doing that and being a part of his next season.
0: All right, that brings this episode to a close. I will be leaving Barbie's website in the description along with her foundation website and Instagram that is the International Pain Foundation. So those links will be there as well. So definitely go and check that information out. um, If you have a chronic illness or you're with somebody that could use that site to help just learn more information and be advocates so definitely go look to see all of that good information and of course if you'd like to connect with the podcast here our website is in the description it will take you to all of our social media instagram facebook and linkedin and of course if you would like to support the podcast monetarily we have a patreon page and if you would like to be a guest on the show i would love to have you so just feel free to send me an email i love connecting with new people So thank you, Barbie, so much for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye.
1: Bye. Thank you, Sarah. Take care.